Hello and welcome to the Flying Reporter podcast. I'm John Hunt, a private pilot and YouTuber, and these podcasts will bring you interesting people, views and information focusing on general aviation in the UK. Today we talk about radio telephony. That's the strange language that pilots use to communicate with controllers and vice versa. We discuss why it's so hard to learn and why sometimes it's just best to speak in plain English. And side slip or forward slip, do you know the difference? And when and how to use them? I'll be asking an instructor. The Flying Reporter podcast is brought to you in association with AeroPS, the payment app for pilots, aerodromes and operators that makes it easy to pay landing fees, book PPR, settle parking and handling charges and even pay for fuel. Download AeroPS now from the Android or Apple app stores. If you have your pilot's licence, what was the hardest part of the flying training for you? Was it the exams? the practice force landings, the diversions, or perhaps was it radio telephony? One of the biggest issues I had learning to fly was getting to grips with handling the aeroplane while at the same time talking this crazy foreign language that pilots and controllers use. I did find diversions hard too, but we'll perhaps leave that for another day. It's a steep learning curve, and the fact is many people continue to struggle with their radio telephony long after they've received their licence. Well, today we're talking with an expert in radio telephony. It's not only her full-time job, she's written books and training manuals on the subject and is a radio telephony examiner herself. Today we welcome commercial pilot and air traffic controller Helena Hughes. Helena works for Nats and can be heard on Heathrow Special and also Thames and Luton Radar. I started by asking Helena which came first for her, flying or controlling? My father was a, a pilot, so I sort of grew up in a, an aviation household. When I left university, I was sort of qualified to do nothing practical. So I went to the States to complete my PPL out there. So in that sense, uh, flying came first, I suppose. Um, but while I was out there, my mother saw a um, an advert in the local paper for air traffic control assistance stroke trainee controllers at Luton and so she put in an application form on my behalf and then said please get back by <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah so so it's, it's sort of so it's um, all thanks to your mum then it is yes indeed yeah big big thanks coming to radio telephony then uh, and why it is so hard to learn what is it about radio telephony that so many people find so difficult it is like learning uh, another language. There's all these sort of weird terms to, to get on board. And I also think it's it's very alien to people. I'm used to sort of talking to disembodied people. And uh, it's the well-known adage that the press to transmit button disconnects your, your brain from your mouth, isn't it? And you're, I think there's a concern. People are obviously worried about making mistakes. Um, everyone judging them which nobody does we all learned at some time I've been very lucky in that people have paid me to do it all day every day it seems sometimes so it is something that you do get used to with with practice and and that's that's the big thing is having the ability to to practice and it does get easier things become more natural just like learning a, a second language I suppose it's you know it's, it's partly the fact that you're combining the learning to fly an aeroplane which 
in and of itself is a is quite a challenge when you start out mm -hmm. and trying to pick up the RT at the same time. And I suppose is there something to be said for pilots maybe trying to immerse themselves in RT, reading the radio telephony manual, you know, almost as a starter before they get onto their practical training? Because it is it's such a, it's such a barrier, I think, for people succeeding in their in their training. Absolutely. When I was instructing a lot more and I was um, actually based at Luton Airport, I was teaching for the Britannia Flying Club as was. So the students there were straight away sort of having to deal with a lot of RT loading while they were learning. And at the same time, I was uh, instructing at Falmer, which was a little grass strip with air ground. So you could see the difference in people's ability. You know, the guys learning from the nice quiet strip their their actual sort of practical flying went quite quickly and the radio had to be sort of worked on subsequently whereas the 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 people learning at Luton their radio was sort of really drilled into them from the get-go you know it maybe took a little bit longer to get the practical elements of of flying over it does take away particularly a student pilot's capacity that they have available for for learning so the, you know, the more you can do on the ground and learn it before you're having to do, you know, the, the pat the head and rub the stomach thing of having to do everything else of fly the aircraft and navigate as well, the better, really. Controlled airspace transits. What would you say to pilots who are, who are new setting out and controlled airspace, um, maybe not Heathrow as their first go, <laughs> but, um, you know, do they need to have a particular level of competence in radio telephony to, to try and access controlled airspace? Hopefully during training, people would have been guided through and practised a couple of times with their instructor so that they should have a level of competence before they try to do the uh, the, the crossing on their own. So it shouldn't be um, wholly unfamiliar. It obviously fills the controller with a bit more confidence if you sound competent, like uh, you know what you're, you're going to do and you're not going to cause paperwork at the end of the day. But I think the, the main thing to appreciate is that if you're at all unsure about anything you've been asked to do, just ask us to say again, we would much rather repeat what we've said than have someone misunderstand what we've asked them to do or misinterpret an instruction and, and get things wrong. So never be afraid to ask for, for clarification if you if you don't think you've either heard it all or you're not sure you've understood exactly what you've been asked to, to do would be the uh, the top tip, I would say. I've heard some very patient controllers. Uh, and I don't know, you must be made of something very special because uh, <laughs> when you when you hear some people who struggle to read back a Q&H and a squawk, I mean, it's just two items of information that somehow some people can't seem to manage to read back. And it made me think, I'm wondering if they're hearing properly. I'm wondering if A, they've got either some kind of hearing loss, which hopefully should be picked mm. up in medicals if, if they're having them, because we don't all have to have medicals these days to carry on flying. But also whether maybe they've got a, a, a you know substandard headset. Yes. I mean, I know from yeah. sort of buying a more expensive headset, m the confidence in my RT has gone up you know tenfold because I can now hear what the controllers are saying and, uh, and my yeah. readbacks are more accurate. I wonder what you think of that. Yeah, I think that's a, a a fair point. You know, and it's the thing about active listening, which is another skill that a student pilot has to develop: listening out for the the cues. Um, not only your call sign, but any traffic 
nearby, um, obviously to improve your situational awareness. Some schools have sort of communal headsets that, um, you know, have possibly been not treated very well. And, you know, and I think it's a bit like when people are um, learning to play an instrument, you know, if, if you have a good one rather than just think, oh, this will do because they're only learning, um, it actually sort of improves performance. So another good thing is if it's not going the way that you anticipate the call you're making, just stop it. I mean, I, I have one from when I was working ground many years ago and it was in the days when you could call the uh, the flow regulator to amend slot times a little bit and I'd managed to improve someone's slot and I started a call and I said the the regulators increased and at that point I should have said oh no this this is um, this isn't what I want to say at all and I came out with some nonsense that the the regulator has increased the negative tolerance on your slot time <laughs> and the, there was sort of this stunned silence and uh, so I think the pilot and me thought about what had been said and he, he just came back with does that mean we can go early <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> so you know there was a point in that when I should have said you know just stop myself and said disregard <sighs> stop the transmission and then go back and and say something sensible <laughs> Yeah, like yeah. you can go five minutes early would have been better. <laughs> yeah, sometimes plain English is 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 often you know trying to sort of squeeze something into some oh, kind of bizarre radio telephony sausage absolutely. factory. Is it sometimes easier just to say it straight out? You know, obviously standard phraseology is there for a reason, but if it's not working, plain English, and we'll we'll do our best to uh, to interpret. Can we talk about infringements briefly? Of course. I think we can all tell that there's been a bit of a change of emphasis over the last five or so years. Uh, infringements are treated far more seriously, perhaps, than they used to be, or certainly in a more regulated fashion than they used to be. And we all know that there are consequences for infringements, both in terms of safety, but also for your pilot licenses and, and also, no doubt, for controller licenses if controllers um, uh, you know, mess up too. Um, and I wonder what your thoughts are about it, because when I was learning to fly, it was quite easy to fly. And that wasn't that long ago. We're not talking centuries ago. Um, it was quite easy to fly with a stopwatch, uh, a chart and um, a compass. Mm. But do you know what? There is absolutely no way that I will ever navigate the southeast of England that way um, right now. I've always, I'm always going to have to have GPS on, on board. Mm. I think it's part, partly due to the fact that controlled airspace has increased. And sometimes it's almost like the... You know, the motorist's equivalent of a speed trap in some places with little fillets of airspace that can catch you out. I mean, you're both a controller uh, and and a pilot, so you can see it from both sides. And I, I wonder what your thoughts are, are about it. I mean, obviously, there is, you know, you, you will be aware more than most of the safety implications of an infringement. But no doubt you can see the difficulty that pilots face these days. Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the south and east of England and other areas of the country. The airspace is so complicated with different bases, um, sort of quite sudden changes in the level that you're allowed to fly in, never mind the actual control zones to avoid as well. So GPS helps. And I think the uh, the Gasco Take Two campaign is a really good idea where they're encouraging people to stay two miles laterally or 200 feet below any bases. But I think one of the, the big things is that ATC are there to help and particularly around 
all of the London zones. You have Farnborough, there's Southend who provide a service. There's always someone to talk to who will also be trying in as far as they're able to, to, to monitor your flight as well. Use of the listening squawks as well. The frequency monitoring codes has saved an awful lot of heartache. I, I can remember a, a couple of ca- occasions over the last summer where I've managed to get through to someone and say, look, the uh, controlled airspace two miles ahead suggests you turn east or west to avoid and, you know, averted um, an infringement. I mean, like you say, from the, the controller's point of view, it is a, a safety aspect. They, an infringement is very disruptive to airport traffic. An infringement could involve stopping departures, um, which obviously at Heathrow means that the tower have to spend the rest of the day trying to catch up with their commercial movements, probably. It could mean breaking off airliners on approach. Safety-wise, you have a, a, a pilot there all set up for a nice landing and suddenly, no, missed approach, back in the sequence. So so they're having to be quite reactive in the way they're, they're flying and we're having to be quite reactive in the way we're controlling um, as the situation may develop. So these are all sort of um, holes in the traditional Swiss cheese uh, model that are starting to, to line up. We're typically planning sort of our, our what's going to happen with our traffic for the next five, the next 10, the next 15 minutes. If we have a, an infringement suddenly, which means we're breaking off traffic, we then have to start being very reactive and finding places in... I know we said there's a lot of controlled airspace, but when you're trying to manoeuvre several airliners around, you run out of room quite uh, quite quickly. So it's uh, it's a big uptick in, in workload. I just wanted to end by asking you, you know, which do you prefer then, oh. flying or controlling? <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're both rewarding in very different ways. Um, fun-wise, flying obviously is a bit more... Uh, 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 tiny bit more fun and work most of the time is is uh, like I say it's it's very rewarding and if it's going well you know it it is a, a very um, entertaining thing to do it's not a good thing to radar control isn't a very exciting thing to watch but to actually do it is is quite uh, uh, quite a different matter Helena Hughes there air traffic controller radio telephony examiner and commercial pilot. Helena and I made a video not that long ago where we did a transit of Heathrow's controlled airspace. It's a really good watch and you can find it on my Flying Reporter YouTube channel. The video title is Crossing Britain's Busiest Airspace. Do check it out. Now for our Ask the Instructor feature. We're back at Anglian Flight Centres with the school's head of training, Nigel Wilson. And today, Nigel is explaining side slips and forward slips. I don't know how many other people get confused by this. <laughs> uh, you know, which is which? There's a side slip, there's a forward slip. Which do you use when and why are they, why are there two different types of slip? OK, well, it's a bit of a misnomer, really, but there are two different types of slip, but most people will refer to them as side slipping. Yeah. So let's talk about what a slip is before we talk about side or yeah. forwards. Yeah. So a slip is basically where you're flying cross-controlled. So we've got, uh, for example, right uh, rudder applied and opposite aileron, so left aileron, or left rudder and right aileron. 
Another word for a side slip, although you won't have been taught that this is the case, is actually when you do a crosswind landing, mm. you're actually doing a side slip. Mm. In so, a crosswind landing, we're forcing the aircraft by use of the rudder to fly down the direction of the runway. Yeah. And then because of the crosswind, we're using aileron to actually slip the aeroplane into the wind so that we maintain our position over the centerline of the runway. Yeah. So a side slip is defined as you are slipping, but you are traveling in the direction that the nose is pointing. Invariably, people are taught to side slip when actually it's a forward slip in this situation where, where we want to use it to uh, increase our rate of descent. We right. want to descend. Right. So when people talk about side slipping to descend, actually that's a forward slip. Okay. <laughs> side slipping is to do with landing on a runway, okay, yes. a crosswind landing. Forward slipping is actually what you do when you want to reduce, al uh, reduce altitude or, or descend. So aircraft that don't have flaps, like Tiger Moth, for example, right. even if you close the throttle, you might want to increase the rate of descent. You can do that by forward slipping. Yeah. So that's where um, you your travel or the aircraft direction is not in line with the nose. So invariably, we, we are effectively also going to be using more control inputs than for a side slip. So we might yaw the nose to the right in a forward slip and then apply left aileron to increase our rate of descent, but our, our, the, the aircraft is actually traveling at, uh, in a direction somewhere between the nose and the wing. Generally speaking, the, the, the bigger the bank angle you have on, the greater the rate of descent. And obviously, in order to maintain a straight line, you'll need an appropriate amount of opposite rudder. Most aircraft will run out of rudder first. So you will hit the rudder stop uh, and then you will still have aileron available uh, if you want to increase the rate of descent further. But you then don't travel in a straight line. You actually travel in an arc towards the, the lower right. wing. Um, so when you're doing a forward slip to yeah. lose altitude, you would use rudder to point your nose into the wind? Well, it, it, at altitude, it doesn't really matter. Okay. Okay. But if you're using this in conjunction with coming into land, right. then yes, you would tend to slip with the nose pointing into the wind. Right. Yeah. Which means that actually when you get near the ground yes. everything you're going to change around reverse yes. everything yeah, yeah. so uh, so that's the way that it works but you point you point the nose into wind uh, if you're using a forward slip to descend on an approach to a runway what about airspeed because i get concerned and perhaps this is a myth you can bust for me i know uh, from you and i talking that the airspeed indications may or will not be accurate yeah. in a slip because your airspeed probe is now in a different position to the relative airflow, right? Yeah. But, um, and I know that you also say, am I right, that in a slip, you just maintain attitude and then yeah. your airspeed should remain constant, even yeah. though it might, un it might, might it look might as if it decreased. It might overread, yes. yeah. So you maintain attitude, but what does that mean for stall speed? If you are in a slip, are you at greater risk of a stall? Well, you, you are to a certain extent because the airflow is not flowing as it should over the wings. And you also have got um, uh, usually a masked area of the wing, the, the downwind side right. of the fuselage, if you like. Um, so you'll be losing lift in that, in that respect as well. But um, it's not going to affect it to a great degree. 
Um, so, so long as you've got the, the, the attitude correct to begin with yes. for the airspeed that you want to achieve in the descent, then, then that's the nose attitude you want to maintain when you introduce the slip. So if you're on final approach, I mean, this is where it will become critical and you're yeah. at approach speed, you're not that far away from the stall. Okay, no. so is it safe to do it at, at approach speed? Would you add some some speed for 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 the slip maneuver just to keep you yeah, well you can do and 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 this is where you need to be a little bit careful and, and look at the poh as well because mm. uh usually what you do because you can slip an airplane with flaps down as well mm. uh providing the poh doesn't have a recommendation that you don't right because invariably when people start to um want, or want to increase the rate of descent and they're on final approach the first thing you should do it seems obvious talking about it is put the flaps yes. down to begin with yeah. okay then if you want to slip on top of that as long as the poh says that that's okay to do so then you can introduce a slip there as well yeah. so the key thing again if you've got if you've got an aircraft with flaps as well there's no harm in increasing the airspeed while you're slipping slightly yeah. because when you put it all back together again into controlled flight, you've got all the drag flap down, you're soon going to slow up again right. back to your approach speed. Um, so it's sort of horses for courses. In Some of the uh, manuals say that, you know, uh, I think it's a 172 manual, right, for example, yeah. says if you've, if you've got full flap, then it's recommended that you don't slip, yeah. okay? You can slip. They're, what what they're worried about is that um, if you end up in a configuration where the airflow begins to mask the elevator mm -hmm. or the tailplane, um, and what that can result if it gets sufficiently masked is you lose elevator control. Mm. Um, and effectively, if you snip the airplane off a tail, it's going to do a nosedive. So it, will all, it always recovers back to a, a, a safe scenario where it's going to try and increase the airspeed and change the airflow. But if you're close to the ground, that's not going to help you. So... Again, you know, you can you can slip 172s with full flap, but what I tend to do is I tend not to do it at approach speed. Right. Okay, I would increase the speed first so that the airflow doesn't get modified sufficiently to to, right. to mask the tail. But always go by the POH. Yeah. One final point: fuel, fuel tanks, and slipping, yeah. <laughs> uh, because this is what they don't tell you. Also, yeah, that's right. Is that when you're slipping, you feel your body move in that yeah. uh, aircraft? Guess what? The fuel is moving it too. Does. Right. Yeah. So, PA28 tanks both sides. Yeah. Coming into land. If I'm, if I think I might need to slip, do I need to think about which tank I'm on, or for how long I slip? It, it's just one to, to, to bear in mind, certainly. So uh, it also depends on how much fuel you've got in right. the tank yeah. as to where the pickup is yeah. from, from the fuel tank. It's usually inboard at the lower because the, the, um, the wings have got dihedral on them. So it's usually inboard. So if you're slipping uh, you know, in one direction and all the fuel is run down to the far side of the tank away from where the fuel pickup is, then you're going to have a bit of an engine problem. Yeah. Uh, usually when you level the wings off because you will when that happens yeah. <laughs> it will pick up again pretty quickly yeah, yeah? but it's, it's certainly stuff to bear in mind as to which direction you're slipping as to think about where the fuel pickups are as to where the fuel is going to be to allow the engine conti to continue yeah. this is messing with my head now because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'm sitting here thinking right if i'm slipping, which way is it yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> i think you've got to be there to feel it um Great stuff, Nigel. I think that's really interesting and a lot of stuff there that wasn't, I don't think, covered in my training or maybe I was you know, lost that day when I was reading the books. And I, you know, I don't know what you think and whether that was helpful to you, whether you've heard of those things before. I think we've covered a couple of myths there and, and uh, 
and certainly got to the bottom of, you know, which slip and when and when not and so on and so forth. So, yeah, great stuff. Nigel, thank you. We'll see you next time. If you have any Ask the Instructor type questions that you think would be good to discuss in these podcasts with Nigel, then please do get in touch. The best way to reach me is through my website. You'll find that by searching online for The Flying Reporter. That's it for this episode of the podcast. It's been sponsored by AeroPS, the payment app for pilots, aerodromes and operators. If you're an aerodrome owner or manager, then take a look at how AeroPS can save you time and money. Don't forget to follow the podcast so you don't miss our next episode. But for now, until next time, fly safely, my friends. Mm -hmm.